0: Welcome to CubeFM, the podcast where cloud native folks come to share their knowledge about Kubernetes, how they've leveled up, and what you should be learning next. In today's episode, I'm joined by Gazel Gafour, who worked for seven years at Target Australia, helping their e-commerce team as they adopted Kubernetes, specifically EKS. In this episode, we'll talk about the different benefits and the trade-offs of using technologies like Carpenter and Bottle Rocket OS. Let's take a look at what Gazel had to say about his experience. <coughs> So, Ghazal, welcome to KubeFM. Um, just to get started, controversial question, interested in hearing your answer. If you had to take three tools to install on a brand-new Kubernetes cluster, which ones would they be and why?
1: All right. Uh, thank you, Bart, uh, for having me on your podcast. Um, so, yeah, it, I think it would depend very much on which cloud vendors uh, manage Kubernetes cluster it is. Uh, on EKS, at least, if I had to pick just three, Uh, I think it would be a metric server, which, of course, is a prerequisite for scaling our applications, Uh, a compute provisioner, uh, and I suppose uh, we all used to go with Cluster Autoscaler, but now I swear by Carpenter, which we'll get into, Uh, and the third would be something for observability, uh, preferably something based on open telemetry.
0: Like you said, we'll we'll dig into Carpenter a little bit later on. Um, now, taking it, you know, to a little bit more about your background. What do you do, and and who do you work for at the moment? Uh,
1: so, I am a lead developer with uh, REA Group, uh, specifically uh, in uh, their privacy team. Uh, and uh, I only started recently. And before that, I had uh, a long seven-year stint uh, at Target Australia. Fantastic. Seven years is no short
0: period of time. I think we'll we'll dig into that a little bit uh, further down the road. In in terms of your experience getting into cloud native, how did that how did that start?
1: Um, yeah, I think it uh, started while I was working for uh, an ad tags flash big data company in India uh, called Flytext, uh, who I believe are now more into uh, AI and ML. Um, we were looking at ways to better manage our microservices. Uh, I think at the time. Uh, the term microservices wasn't all that popular even uh, around 2015 or so. Uh, And we were looking at solutions like uh, OSGI, but sort of stumbled upon containerization and uh, Docker. Uh, So for container orchestration, we considered both uh, Mesos, Apache Mesos, and Kubernetes. Uh, Kubernetes was super new then, and I believe we went for Apache Mesos at the time. Uh, because it had better support for Apache Spark uh, workloads, which we needed to run. Uh, And then later, when I started working for Target Australia, we had the opportunity to revisit Kubernetes. And uh, this was, of course, after all, the container orchestration was over. Very good. Like you said, yeah, there was a contentious
0: time. And the things that were influencing those decisions, because I was at a company as well in 2017, 2018, well, they were deciding which one uh, to go with and i remember a co-worker went to uh, a conference in amsterdam about mesos and there was a lot of passion a lot of interest and at that time like you said the support being offered for each one was was slightly different in terms yeah. of your entryway into cloud native were there any things that were challenging how did you go about learning the subject of container orchestration whether it was kubernetes or patchiness what was the learning process like there
1: uh most of what I've learned, I think I've learned on the job. Uh, Kubernetes was just the right solution um, to an interesting uh, and challenging technology problem at work. Uh, we were looking at both modernizing our application by means of containerization and also uplifting our CI CD workflow. Uh, and we happened to come across uh, this thing called Jenkins X, uh, which, by the way, does not really have Jenkins. Uh, the VM-based pipeline scheduler that we all know anymore, uh, but combines tools uh, like Tecton uh, and uh, other systems inspired by Prow, uh, a GitOps operator, features like preview environments, and all of that. So it provided an opinionated take on how to build, package, and deploy applications on Kubernetes. So it was something of a crash course or like a shortcut into learning. More of the Kubernetes uh, ecosystem. So, for uh, anyone trying to learn Kubernetes, I would, um, you know, recommend looking at uh, an opinionated system like that, or of course, uh, the Kubernetes Slack workspace. Very good. With that in mind, you know, make community
0: part of the solution, right? You know, is that if yeah. you're if you're coming face to face with these with these you know technical challenges, like you said, in a sort of crash course environment what resources are going to be best. We'll take a little bit of, uh, we'll take a, a look later on at the blog that you wrote in terms of channeling that knowledge and sharing it with others. But in your experience, getting into the Slack and directly asking questions, that was beneficial. Absolutely.
1: Um, and that's something, I guess, um, we can all be a little apprehensive about. Um, sort of uh, doubting yourself or um Things like that. Uh, I I would just say, um, you know, try to lose those inhibitions and, and yeah, just be open with the community, and um, you would be able to reap the rewards. I believe. Yeah. With
0: your experience now, some years you know later on, if you could go back and give any advice to your to your previous self when you were starting out with Kubernetes, yeah. what what tips might
1: you share? Um that's yeah, super relevant to what we were just talking about. Uh, I think as a younger technologist, like I mentioned, I think I was more apprehensive about sharing uh, to the wider tech community. I think perhaps most of us were. Um, you know, we would try to find solutions on Stack Overflow, but not necessarily contribute back. Um, so or share experiences uh, on like stories or blogs, But over the years, I think I've come to realize the value in sharing our experiences with the community. So yeah, that's the thing that I would definitely encourage my younger self to start doing a little early. I think it's a great point. And also
0: because I think as someone who's been involved in communities and and managing communities and trying to create a welcome and open environment where people feel like there's no such thing as a stupid question or that it's okay to put things out there, I think a lot of engineers, you know, we talk about the, you know, the, the rule that most people in communities will just be lurkers. And then, you know, it's a, it's a minority that are actually driving the action. Do you think that it's imposter syndrome that prevents people from asking or that they're worried that a coworker or a boss might be nearby and would be surprised by a question that they might be putting forward? What are the things that you think are, are blockers or obstacles to get those questions more out in the open, or like you said, sharing experiences?
1: Uh, I think there's definitely a lot of imposter syndrome. Uh, there's um, a fear that uh, what we might be doing isn't special enough. Uh, so that's definitely, uh, well, the thing that I've seen the most. So yeah, just just gotta lose it and uh, get on there and uh, you know, start collaborating with the community.
0: Fantastic, and, and and like you said, you know, sharing those experiences is a gift to others, so they can say, yeah. oh, I'm not alone, or this person also had a similar problem. So it's yeah. a it's a really good lesson that people can decide how they want to do it, but but you know, sharing is caring, as the saying goes, and you know, be be an active part of the community and and help drive those things forward. Now to move on to the the topic of today, which is a blog that you wrote about the state of EKS clusters uh, in your experience at Target Australia. So you were there for seven
1: years, all right? That must have been a really good time. Yes, um, it was a really good time, uh, and I lo- uh, learned a lot during my time at Target. Uh, the online team was just two Agile squads when I started, uh, and it was a great group of, like, very motivated and talented people. Uh, we were doing Agile really well, you know, tight stand-ups, effective, retros. throws. uh discovery of upcoming initiatives sliced in really nicely. Uh, we also had a very mature uh, test slash uh, behavior-driven development practice. Um, I'd started getting used to that uh, while contributing to open source repositories a little before uh, and had had tried to introduce that practice in a previous organization. And uh, then I joined Target and they already had very good rigor around it uh, and a very rational emphasis on quality metrics like code coverage. So that was all like really a a great start to it. And then from around 2018 uh, or so, I got involved with a lot of the cloud adoption uh, and related innovation journey with Target. Uh, I contributed to Target's way of leveraging the serverless pattern for microservices with AWS Lambda, ABI Gateway, and associated services. Uh, And later when considering how we could modernize long running application workloads uh, i was able to contribute to the adoption uh, of kubernetes of course uh, and after the modernization and migration of the whole platform uh, to aws uh, we refined it quite a lot so we were able to improve security observability uh, and stability of like the overall sort of application platform uh, and i have written a few blogs uh, about some of it Um, and yeah, it it was a long, but
0: fulfilling tenure. Sounds like it. And, and regarding the blogs, we'll be sharing those in the show notes. So folks can take a look at that afterwards. You know, 2017 compared to now, you know, if we're talking about adoption of Kubernetes in any form or flavor, what was it like, you know, over the years working with EKS? If we're talking about things in 2017, probably not as smooth as how some things are now. Can you just walk us through that in terms of gaining the confidence regarding the tooling that was provided? And also, you know, you were not alone in this endeavor, bringing a team along with these best practices that you mentioned previously. What was that experience
1: like? Um, I think our adoption of Kubernetes itself preceded the actual EKS adoption. Uh, I can't recollect the exact time frame, but I remember that our first Kubernetes clusters on AWS were using a distribution called COPS. Uh, at the time, uh, the primary goal was to uplift our CI-CD capability using containerized build pipelines. Uh, and our platform of choice was Jenkins X, which I mentioned before. And I, as I mentioned earlier, it's something of a misnomer considering what people think of when they hear Jenkins. Uh, it's not something Jenkins X has anymore. So I tried to just say JX. <laughs> uh, so JX had uh, tooling, uh, and I, I think it still does, uh, to help even the cluster setup. So it used to be very CLI oriented, but now they have Terraform modules. Uh, And when EKS became available in the Sydney region, we immediately switched from COPS to EKS. And we loved that we did not have to worry about uh, availability and scalability of control plane components uh, or durability of uh, etcd, and all of the pain of just self-hosting the Kubernetes control plane. Uh, And I think um, the uh, Obviously, the EKS team have been excellent refining the offering over the years. I remember things like workload identity, service accounts, uh, and association to AWS IAM came pretty soon after. Um, But later, they made progress with uh, CSI drivers, improvements to their out-of-the-box CNI plugin. Uh, I think, not think, recently they even uh, switched over to start... uh, using eBPF for the their CNI agent and implementing network policies. So really good progress. Um and server-side apply uh controllers or operators for other AWS services. They've got a whole project on that. I think it's called AC, AWS controllers for Kubernetes. Um their ingress controller is also pretty spectacular now. Um so yeah we we had Quite a journey after even the initial sort of um, EKS adoption. So, you know, shifting from uh, Ingress Nginx to AWS Load Balancer Controller, then uplifting our observability solution. Uh, then, around 2022, uh, which is the topic of uh, the blog that you found, uh, is when we started using Bottle Rocket OS. Uh, and uh, we also started uh, using Carpenter fantastic so with that in mind you know there's like
0: uh one major transition sort of as an umbrella and then beneath that other transitions that are taking place let's let's focus on Panel rocket OS mm-hmm. what was uh uncomfortable or problematic about Amazon Linux that influenced the decision to move to that uh tell me more about that
1: um an ami based on Amazon Linux 2 uh, which is called eks op- not which was which is called uh eks optimized Amazon Linux was the only option for host OS for worker nodes on EKS initially Uh, I think there was also uh, even initially somewhat unofficial support for uh, Ubuntu based um, uh, worker nodes Um, but a a general purpose OS for hosting container workloads uh, to me did not make much sense at all Uh, I remember looking at our vulnerability management solution and thinking, how do we deal with all these vulnerabilities associated with uh, the version of Python or GCC on the host OS? Uh, We don't even need Python there. Uh, If our applications need Python, they'll just bring that in their uh, container images. So because we were starting from a not-so-great starting point in terms of security, uh, we had to bake our own AMI that addressed for CIS hardening, and then some of those customizations had to be scale back a bit to let our worker nodes even join the cluster. Um, So, yeah. And in technology, it's all about finding the right solutions uh, to problems, right? So, yeah, it was probably not the right fit uh, and Bottle Rocket was definitely the right solution there. You mentioned
0: vulnerabilities, but apart from that, if we're talking about security and then also issues of performance and cost, what did you find with Bottle Rocket OS that you hadn't found previously?
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a compounding thing. Uh, With Bottle Rocket, uh, what what we start off with is that it's very lean in nature, uh, which inherently makes it more secure than general purpose OSS. It doesn't have a package manager. Uh, Instead opting for an update mechanism involving partition flips, uh, there is new SSH server. Instead, Bottle Rocket uh, hosts have like a control container that has AWS Session Manager, uh, does not even have interactive shells like Shell or Bash or Zsh. Uh, instead, we can interact with World Rocket APIs from the control container to manage it. Uh, so it is quite a paradigm shift. Uh, the surface of attack is simply much thinner, and that's just the start. Uh, it also has like an immutable root file system backed by DM Verify. A memory backed file system for slash etc, all the config, uh, executables built with hardening flags and SE Linux enabled in enforcing mode. So clearly designed with security being a top priority. Um, after we switched over to Border Rocket, vulnerabilities on the host dropped significantly. And we did expect some performance improvements due to how lean Border Rocket OS is and some operational efficiencies as a result of that. But the observed improvements definitely exceeded our expectations. We saw as much as 41% reduction in response times for some customer-facing endpoints. We believe um, along with the bottle rocket change, we also changed uh, the EDR security agent that we had, and that might have had uh, a contribution uh, to this outcome. Uh, and the improvement in performance and reduction in overheads, uh, all of that also resulted in a 40% reduction in compute capacity requirement. So, money in the bank. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Money saved is money earned. Yeah. Another thing though is that you, know,
0: you obviously got to know Bottle Rocket quite well. Is this something that you would recommend to all EKS users or are there any sort of trade-offs or perhaps things that wouldn't
1: necessarily fit for every use case? That's a really interesting question. Um, I I was um, looking at the state uh, of things uh, on uh, GCP. I believe Google's container-optimized OS is the default node or host OS uh, in GKE. Uh, So I'm hoping uh, that AWS makes spotted Rocket OS the default for host uh, in EKS. Uh, The challenges I've seen... um, you know, from our own experience and heard others from the community mention, somewhat paradoxically have been around security. Some security um, tooling, um, like EDR agents and such, uh, they require third-party kernel modules, which are not easy to support on Bonnet Rocket OS. I think container-optimized OS, Google's official docs just say, no, can't do at all. Uh, Bottle Rocket, I think I've seen discussions around how you might be able to sort of make your own Bottle Rocket OS with some third-party kernel modules, but it's not uh, a path that's easy to pursue. Um, so that that could um, hinder adoption, uh, but thankfully leaders in uh, the cybersecurity space uh, have started developing tooling that leverages eBPF. Which of course allows security and networking observability use cases uh, for processes running in the user space, without the need for uh, these custom kernel modules.
0: In terms of you know, on taking the subject of trade offs further, another trade off that you were looking at was not getting the results that you wanted from cluster autoscaler, which led you to moving over to Carpenter. What can you tell us just briefly about what Carpenter is and what were some of the factors that influenced that decision?
1: Sure, uh, I think I'll address uh, the point of auto scaling itself. Um, when we think, or the way that I used to think about uh, about it is, we have horizontal and vertical pod auto scalers uh, to scale our uh, containerized workloads itself, and then we have cluster auto scaler to scale uh, the compute and infrastructure that powers all of it. Uh, and within EKS, we had node groups, which are essentially ASGs or Auto Scaling Groups uh, of EC2 instances uh, in AWS, uh, and we we would start at some minimum capacity, uh, and Cluster Autoscaler would interact with these ASGs uh, to scale them uh, as as you know the uh, containers require. Um, but uh, Cluster Autoscaler has little impact on provisioning decisions. It's more of just an autoscaler and not really a provisioner. Uh, so decisions like which instance type it uh, itself or which uh, availability zone new nodes should be in, uh, the ephemeral storage they have, pricing strategy, uh, all of those are pretty much like ASG config as opposed to something that Cluster Autoscaler can uh, determine. Uh, Carpenter, on the other hand, is a true node provisioning system. Uh, it observes resource requirements within the cluster and provisions and even deprovisions compute as necessary. Uh, it even does interruption handling now for spot capacity. Uh, and we were using uh, something called AWS Node Termination Handler for interruption handling, but Carpenter has made that obsolete. And in
0: in a similar way with looking at you know things like uh, cost, flexibility, availability, what were some of the things that you found in in, in Carpenter? And if there's anything you'd like to mention as well too about Fargate.
1: Yeah. Um, so unlike with um, Cluster Autoscaler, uh, Carpenter was interacting with EC2 APS directly. So it can make smart provisioning choices uh, based on the workloads that need the compute. Uh, it can identify any AZ affinity that workloads may have. Uh, we can have more deterministic spread of the applications across AZs as opposed to hoping that spread of the host computer infrastructure may translate to spread of the applications. Uh, if you have application workloads that need on-demand capacity, we can set that node selection criteria specifically on those workloads, as opposed to having some minimum on demand base capacity uh, within like a, a node group. Uh, we also leveraged the consolidation feature in Carpenter for more effective bin packing. So all of these choices resulted in reducing the amount of on-demand capacity we were using significantly, driving down costs. Um, And uh, aside from the availability, flexibility, and the cost saving that we had, um, there was also an uplift in security, to say, I mean, not to say the least. Uh, So with ASGs, uh, we used to have to routinely update the whole node group uh, with a newer host OS. Uh, with Carpenter, its provisioner CRD allows for a time to live setting. Uh, so let's say we set something like 30 days. Uh, any node that has been around for 30 days, it will gracefully terminate. Uh, and any newly created instances, uh, they just get like the latest version of the AMI fa- family that we've chosen. And the AMI family that we chose was Bottle Rocket. So it always gets the latest version of Bottle Rocket available. So that's. Um Bottle rocket does have like an update operator uh to update portal rocket hosts. Um, but we think that uh the Carpenter approach to have uh our time to live is much neater. With the update operator, the ASG still spins up uh Bottle Rocket instances as per uh the version that's already in the ASG spec and then does an in-place update. And oh yeah, you, you did uh, mentioned Fargate, thank you for that. Uh, For running Carpenter itself, um, we could use a node group, but we preferred going with a Fargate profile. Uh, There's actually even a feature request on uh, the AWS container roadmap to run Carpenter in the control plane. plane. Fingers crossed. (laughs) We'll
0: stay tuned to see how that develops. Yeah. (laughs) You obviously got to know Carpenter quite well. Is that something you would recommend to anyone that's using EKS,
1: would you use it again? Absolutely. Um, unlike with Bottle Rocket, I can't think of any anything that sort of hinders adoption of Carpenter. Um, now, whenever I see someone inquire on uh, the EKS uh, channel about how to solve a problem they encountered with Cluster Autoscaler, like topology and awareness, uh, I just suggest checking out Carpenter. Good to keep in mind
0: with all these transitions going on as much as we're talking about from a technical perspective and the trade-offs the different you know uh, advantages disadvantages of each one leading a team through this transition like the one you had at target i can imagine is is no easy task right people are accustomed to using certain technologies uh something might be a little bit outdated getting people up to speed what was the process of of upskilling there in terms of getting everyone on the same page getting everyone at the same technical level How did you go about, you know, rolling out, uh, you know, the implementation and adoption of these technologies? What advice would you give to other folks that are in a similar position?
1: Um, We conducted a lot of knowledge sharing within the organization. Um, Some of us attended, uh, you know, KubeCon at Sydney pre-pandemic and shared our experience with the rest of the team. Uh, We also partnered with our uh, AWS account team. Uh, to get access to relevant training. And uh, we also organize some immersion sessions and such.
0: Like like I said, it's just always important to keep in mind as much as we're talking about the technical details, as you said in the very beginning, creating a culture where people are comfortable sharing. Like you said, going to the Kubernetes Slack is is a great resource. Inside each organization, it's a little bit different depending on the culture, depending on the people who work there and their backgrounds. Getting people to, you know, to willingly admit, you know, I don't have experience with that. What are the best resources for me to go to? As you mentioned, some of those initiatives are quite helpful. Is there is there one that worked particularly well for you
1: or your team? Like I said, the uh, Kubernetes Slack workspace itself was an excellent resource.
0: I guess I'm also just thinking too, as you know, for folks that are working at um, folks that are working at a you know, multinational, getting people to go out there and talk about you know a technical challenge that they're facing not wanting to reveal too much, but at the same time get the kind of guidance that's going to help them make better decisions for people that are approaching those sort of issues, both internally within their teams as well as externally with the broader community. Were there any th- observations that you that you had along the way of things that perhaps you didn't expect
1: Um, yeah, what what I did see was,, um, I think this this is where the whole idea of uh, sort of, Um, DevOps versus platform engineering comes into play a little bit. Um, There's a certain sense of, um, you know, you you develop it, you own it, uh, but also there are parts of it uh, that uh, a lot of developers would like to see abstracted. Uh, So there were quite a few bits of, um, you know, what seemed like very infrastructure-y, uh, to a lot of developers uh, that they they didn't they did want to see from uh, an abstract lens. Uh, and I, I think we had uh, the right kind of tooling for it. Uh, so that that helped in that journey. Now, in terms of next steps, what what can we expect to see from you next? Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, I recently started as a lead developer at Aria Group. I'm still quite new here and I'm in awe of uh, the technology practices here. So lots to learn and lots to contribute.
0: Good. In terms of the technological practices there, you know, you have a lot of experience with you know, AWS. Are there any plans to incorporate other
1: clouds such as GKE or, or AKS along the way? Me personally, and I, I don't think I can speak for the organization, I don't have any particular bias uh, for any cloud vendor. Uh, AWS has been the preferred hyperscaler for organizations that I've been a contributor at. Uh, I would like to see more cloud services across most cloud vendors having shared APIs like Kubernetes. That's something to hope
0: for. And just to to double down on that, what would be the primary benefits of that becoming more open?
1: Yeah. uh, See, honestly, I feel like uh, perhaps, um, you know, the early days of cloud is perhaps similar to the early days of like, uh, database adoption. Um, all database vendors had their own uh, sort of APIs, you could say. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the tech community as a whole um, had to sort of figure out open standards like SQL, what was that, 97? So, yeah, I think Kubernetes is definitely uh, one of those shared open standard APIs uh, that tries to sort of bridge some uh, elemental compute, uh, sorry, elemental cloud services like compute and storage and networking uh, and things like that. But there's obviously a lot more, uh, hoping for more standardization. Very, very good. Like you said,
0: it's it's sort of a, ch- I think it's a nice way of, of offering a challenge to the community of how can, you know, the best minds get together and provide a framework through which this can this can become more open uh, in, yeah. in a similar way to what you said about how the database space was uh, in the late nineties. Oh, yeah. the late nineties! <laughs> what a great <laughs> time to be alive. Um, good. Now, is is you worked with quite a few different people at 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 you know Target in Australia, getting this off the ground? Is there anyone who you'd like to give a shout out to who you worked with?
1: Okay. To Anyone listening uh, who contributed, if I missed mentioning your name, I apologize in advance. So some of the names that come to mind are uh, Adam Cartu. Uh, he was our head of customer technology who got the ball rolling uh, and always had our back. Uh, reni Samuel, she was our engineering manager. Uh, Paul Thomas, uh, solution architect, I uh, was my predecessor at Target in that role. Uh, Paul Sherry, he was a project manager for that initiative, uh, the uh, primary sort of migration initiative to AWS. Uh, Adil Kumar, he was a DevOps uh, or cloud engineer in the team.
0: Fantastic. Sounds like a great group of people. And like you said, if anybody else out there is listening that wasn't mentioned, just know that you're, you're very much being taken into consideration. Also with the knowledge that you shared in your blog. And with that in mind, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you if they have any questions about about
1: what you talked about today? Sure, uh, should be easy. I have a somewhat unique name. Uh, last I checked, I was the only person with the name Gasol Gafur uh, based in Melbourne, if you search on LinkedIn. Uh, and I am on the Kubernetes Slack workspace and I just go by my first name, Gasol There, that's me. The, the beauty of having a
0: unique name is I'm the only Bart Farrell that I know of in Spain so far. So also very easy to find in that regard. Uh, Thank you very much for your time today, Ghazal. Really enjoyed this. Like we said, we'll be leaving the links in the show notes to the blogs that you've written. Like you said, you're very, very easy to find on on the Kubernetes Slack. So thank you very much for your time today. And thank you, Bud, for having me.
1: Pleasure. Cheers.